are listening to Low Roads and High Places, Studies from First Kings, preached at Hocus and Baptist Church in the winter of 2009. Today's sermon is entitled, Peak to Valley. And now, Pastor John Boulay. Day, isn't it? I woke up this morning, I stepped out of my house, and I, when I breathed in, I don't know if it's true or if it's just perceived, but I felt like I smelled flowers. I was convinced. I even stopped. I mean, I, I, I wasn't sure. It, it just smelled so good, and I, I feel that we have crocuses in our yard. We, the people who owned our house before us were very, uh, very green, had wonderful green thumbs, and despite the fact that we don't, well, we at least have about five or six years where we continue to reap what they've sown. And so I was even half wondering if I would see crocuses uh, trying to break forth this morning. But it's a double-edged sword, days like this they are, because on the one hand, you wake up in this mor- uh, on a day like today and you're like, yes, it's awesome. But on the other hand, you know that spring is not here. Yeah. Anybody in Delaware knows we still have the big storm coming. Right, the spring break storm that shows up right when you're convinced that spring is going to show up. We still have about a month before the official spring actually is here, and it feels like in Delaware, spring is just late. In my heart, I I feel like it's supposed to be at the end of March, and it doesn't seem to even really creep in until the back half of April. And so it's a double-edged sword because days like today are fun, but they also kind of put your soul in a different season than the rest of your body, because tomorrow will be colder, and the rest of the week, if you've checked the forecast, is in the 40s. We're still in winter. We lived in Alaska for two years, back in the late 90s, and this situation, this kind of double-edged sword or the aggravation of an occasional beautiful day is multiplied tenfold in Alaska, because the, 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 the extremes of the weather are just... Well, they're that more extreme. They're extremes. Our first winter there, my wife and I saw 60 below on the bank sign in town. That's 60 below zero, not 60 below freezing. By the way, your cars are engineered to about 35 below. At 40 below, all of the factors of safety of engineering go out on your car, like the rubber on your tires, for example. At 40 below, when you, when you wake up the next morning and drive to work, your tire is flat, on the bottom where it's been sitting. And so your first quarter mile to work is, uh, 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 until finally your tires get going again. And you turn your car on, it sounds like there's a dinosaur in the engine. And you'll see on really cold days just fan belts scattered across the highway because there's just nothing is engineered to handle that kind of temperature. And then you get this kind of warm day in the middle of it all where it comes up to zero. And I, I promise you this, I drove home with my windows down when it came up to zero. It was, it was warm. People grill out at zero in Alaska. None of, that is, none of that is a lie. It's all true. And only if you live there do you know, because visitors, they don't visit in the winter, do they? They visit in the summer. But something happens in Alaska. It's called cabin fever. You might know it as spring fever, but it's called cabin fever up there. And what happens is you'll get an occasional day like this, you know, may, although, albeit not 60, but maybe 30, 
you'll get a day like today, and particularly, particularly if you have a lower 48 upbringing, your body is ready for spring. And the sunlight's coming back. When, after the shortest day of the year in Alaska, once it gets in a swing, you know how many minutes you gain of sunlight a day in Fairbanks? Seven minutes a day. That's almost an hour a week of increasing sun. It just climbs off the horizon above you. And so there's all these signs that warmth is coming. You have increasing sunlight that's noticeable. You have an occasional warm day. And you're getting excited and you're getting ramped up. But in Alaska, there is no such thing as spring. We don't have it. There are not four seasons in Alaska like there are here. There are two seasons, summer and winter. And it is winter all the way up until May. It can be 15 below on April 31st. That's Alaska. And it's frustrating to the soul. Because you'll get the sun and you, and you get uh, the warmth or the occasional warmth, and in your body you're saying it's spring, it's spring, but it's 15 below the next day, and you're stuck. And you'd think that the cabin fever would be worse in January. It's not. Statistically in Alaska, the, the vast majority of de- cases of depression, the vast majority of suicides, all of these things, they happen in the month of April. Not January. They happen in the month of April because in April our body's saying we're somewhere that we're not. Our soul has moved into a different season and we're stuck in winter. Well, you're wondering what does Alaska have to do with Elijah? I hope you'll see this morning that the depression Elijah is dealing with is not a depression of his circumstances so much as it's a depression based on where his soul is and where his body is. That so often in our lives, it is not the circumstances in which we're living that are so difficult. It's how our soul is dealing with those circumstances that we're dealing with. And so, as we turn our attention to Scripture, I just hope that you'll see that Elijah is still in winter, although his soul had leapt forward to spring. Please pray with me, and, and we'll turn to the Bible. Lord Jesus, we pray your blessings over these words. Father, in particular, I pray that your spirit would minister to those people who are in a spiritual cabin fever. Lord, who feel like their spirit has moved on, but their bodies are still left to deal with the harsh reality of the world around them. And I just pray, Lord, I pray your spirit of comfort on them. I pray you would speak to them with a still and gentle voice this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I want to give you a little update, particularly if you missed last week. Last week was big. It was the big event in Israel, the single biggest event in Israeli history up to that time. And when I say Israeli, I mean the northern kingdom. There had been a, a drought for three and a half years. The drought was because of the rebellious nature of the kingdom, because Ahab and his wife Jezebel had turned from the Lord They had rejected God and they had instituted Baal worship in the land. And so because of that, Elijah showed up and said, It will not rain. There will not even be dew until I say so. And that came from the Lord. And so the drought came. And that lasted for three years and six months. At the end of that time, the Lord sends Elijah back into the land to bring back the rain. And he does it through this awesome display, this challenge to Ahab on Mount Carmel, where he says to Ahab, You get your prophets and I'll get me, and we'll meet at high noon on Mount Carmel, and we'll see whose God is really God. 
If it's Baal, we'll worship him. But if it's Yahweh, then we'll turn to him. And then if you were here last week, you certainly read it. But if you haven't, the 18th chapter of 1 Kings is a must-read. It's just an absolute must-read of Scripture. All Scripture is a must-read. Go read the Bible. But this is a good one. All right? And, and in it, the Lord displays his glory over Baal. The Baal is, displays his impotence. And God displays his power as he ignites the altar. And this is how it ends. It goes from drought to rain. It goes from Elijah being hunted down to Elijah hunting down the prophets of Baal. And one day it does that. Elijah is a wanted man. And at the end of that day, Elijah says, get the prophets of Baal. and Do not let one of them escape. And he slaughters them in the valley of Kishon. And it kind of ends with this verse, verse 46 of the 18th chapter. The power of the Lord came upon Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Now that's a strange passage that I didn't talk about last week, and we won't spend long on it, but what what appears to happen is the Spirit comes on Elijah in a kind of a supernatural way. In 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 your mind, you should envision that Elijah, Ahab's in his chariot, going to Jezreel, and Elijah, with the Spirit of the Lord, decides to start running. And he's, he's running fast. He's forced gumping it. And he's, he's getting, he runs and he runs and he gets in front of the chariot of Ahab and he leads the procession of Ahab. And do you see the kind of the spiritual suggestion here at the end of this day? The day started out with Ahab going, there you are, Elijah, you troublemaker of Israel. And at the end of the day, Elijah, the man of God, is leading the procession of the king. It's this, it's this kind of, at the end of the day, the kingdom of Israel is following God. That's kind of this, this, this image from the 46th verse. It's a bright day. It is a bright day. It's a sprite spring day. And then... Read with me the first two verses of 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. It is not spring. After what seemed to be this great revival, the great revival of Israel, the great revival of all time, the fury and the rage of Jezebel just comes down on Ahab in in such a powerful and discouraging way. And a quick word about Ahab. You'll see scholars go back and forth. Does Ahab have goodness in him or not? As far as I'm concerned, Ahab is a weak man. That's what he is. So his righteousness is never right There's no righteousness in it. He does what seems to be the survival moment impulse. So when Elijah displayed, the power of God's displayed in front of Elijah, he toes the line. But the second he gets in front of his wife, who seems to be a very powerful and influential woman, I think she's exceptional in her ability to influence, he folds. And this great victory that was on the mountain seems to kind of be erased In two verses, in two verses, Mount Carmel is a thing of the past. In two verses, it was yesterday. 
You know, if you think for a moment, it seems a little far-fetched for us actually to expect that Mount Carmel would have done everything that maybe is suggested. You'd think if Satan had poured all of this effort into the land, if Satan had worked for years and years, and I'm not just talking through the life of Ahab, but through his father Omri, and through Bashah, and through Nadab, and through Jeroboam, and Eli, and all the other ones that I can't remember right now, if Satan has been delicately crafting the rebellion against the Lord, do you really think that one day on top of a mountain was going to fix it? It seems actually preposterous to us, especially since you and I know life. You and I know that in this life, we will have some really close days to the Lord, some high spiritual moments, some mountaintop experiences is what we call them. I think that comes from 1 Kings 18. But we also know from life that 1 Kings 19 is true also. That we have these times where we are close to the Lord, where we feel like we could just conquer the world, but we realize that Satan doesn't reel at that. In your revival, Satan doesn't retreat. Satan doesn't run at the, at the prospect of, of you finding a newfound vigor in Christ. Satan has been around for a long time. He's going to be around after we've gone. He's going to be around for years and years to come. And he is not surprised. He's not scared of us. He does not retreat. He reforms. He steps back, he considers the way that he's going to respond to this new process. And time and time again, you'll see in this world revivals and great things being done among the people of God and in your own life, negated by the fact that we are not prepared for the fact that Satan will be back. Satan will be back. That's the, he is what? He is the prince of this world. So as long as we're here and Christ has not returned, Satan will be back. He's not going to retreat and he's not going to run. And that's what we see here. We see that he regroups and he attacks. Now I want to, there's, there's an attitude in the postmodern, we're the postmodern church, by the way. That's us. But there's this attitude in the postmodern church that sometimes bubbles to the surface, and it's this. It is somehow that the God of the Old Testament... Uh, the gospel of the Old Testament or, or the way that God behaves in the Old Testament or God's people, the nature of the people is one of contention. That God is wrestling with creation in the Old Testament, that he's striving with the people and that, and that it, it's kind of characterized by resistance, resistance of the world to God. But in the postmodern church, what, what, what surfaces very often in writings and, and just in conversation is that the New Testament God is somehow different. Or the New Testament Christianity is somehow different. That Old Testament Christianity was one of contention and striving and butting up against the world. But new, the New Testament faith or the faith that you and I live is one of harmony and love and peace. That somehow we can live out a Christian life and be good Christians and we'll live with harmony with the world. That somehow the world isn't inherently good and they're simply waiting for us to explain things to them and the light bulb will go off and everything will be good. For the life of me, I don't know where this comes from. I cannot find it anywhere in Scripture. I can't, I can't find it. Scripture is completely silent on, on the idea of the world receiving the gospel. 
peacefully and in harmony. The world is not waiting. The world is against us. The faith is always piercing into the darkness. The light is always pushing. We are on the frontier pushing into a dark world. Where was Christ received in this world? If faith is a message of harmony, was Christ received? Was Paul received? Was James received? Was John received? Was Stephen received? Were any of the leaders of the church received with an atmosphere of peace and harmony? Were they embraced by the world? Were they, were they hugged? Were, were, did the Caesars leap on the gospel? No. It was fought for tooth and nail. This is what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. He says this, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power from God is, is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but do not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. The power of the gospel is the power to bring new life into a world that is rejecting it. That is the power of the gospel. It is not reminding the world of the good news they have, but bringing good news to a world that has none. It seems here that Elijah forgets this. It seems here that somehow Elijah expected that after this great event, this mountaintop experience, this glorious spring day, that it would be spring. But Satan does not run. I think we as the church should be conscious of this because the path of Christ is not the path of least resistance. Righteousness brings conflict. And I want you to ask this morning, I don't know whether your life is experiencing peace and harmony with those around you. If it is, uh, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying I want you to justify the peace you experience. The peace you experience, is it a peace from God or is it a peace from accommodation? Is, it a, is, is, is nobody pushing on your life because God is preserving you? Which he may be. There are times when God preserves us. And so I'm not, I'm not, I'm not disclaiming it. I'm just ca- telling you to call your peace into question. Do you have a peace in life because you don't know a single unbeliever? That your entire circle is believers How are you pushing into the darkness? I just want you to question the peace you experience. Is it from God or is it accommodation? Let's keep reading. We'll read verses 3 through 5 now. Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While he himself went a day's journey into the desert, he came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he laid down under the tree, and he fell asleep. This, to me, is like Elijah being in Alaska the day after a good day. When you wake up and you realize it is still winter. It's 15 below outside.
I don't think his station, if we think about Elijah for a second, I don't think his station in life right now, in verse 3 through 5, is really all that different from the Elijah we knew from chapters 17 or 18. I mean, really, what's going on right now? Elijah's being hunted down, which is bad. I mean, there's reason enough for, for depression. Don't get me wrong. But in chapter 17, what was Elijah's station? He was being hunted down. Elijah walks into the court of Ahab and says, it will neither rain nor will there be any dew until I say so. And God says, now get out of here because they're going to come get you. And, and the Lord extracts Elijah from the land and puts him in hiding. And when the food runs out there, you know what he does? The Lord takes him in hiding and puts him with a widow for all this time. Elijah's been in hiding. So how is his life different now? He's laying in the desert, dying of thirst and hunger. How is that different than chapter 17 when Elijah was being fed by the ravens, laying in the, in the middle of a drought? Nothing has really changed except for the fact that Elijah's spirit expected revival. That's what's changed. What's changed is not the circumstances. It's the fact that his soul is in spring and his body is in winter. His, his body is enduring the hardship that he expected God to take him from, that he expected the world to be taken from. And I think some here today wrestle so much sometimes with the hardship, not because it's that hard, but because your soul is in a different season. Kind of the egg timer has ticked. Uh, and you're ready for something new, and God's saying, not yet. It's still winter. I just want to encourage you. I want to encourage you that you're not forgotten, and that there's people far better than you, like Elijah, who have been there and are struggling. As he is. But there's something else that is suggested here by Elijah's words. He says, I've had enough. I'm expired. He says these words, I am no better than my ancestors, is what he says. And the suggestion that Elijah has, what he's suggesting here is that somehow the measure of his faithfulness was based upon what was going to happen on Mount Carmel. That's what's going on here. Is He looks at what happened on Mount Carmel, or now what hasn't happened on Mount Carmel, and he says, I'm no better than my ancestors. None of us prophets, not the, my, my, the prophets of my ancestors, none of us have been able to call Israel back to righteousness. I am a failure. That's what he's saying. And we do that all the time, don't we? We place the measure of our faith based on the results we see. God tells us to pray and to witness and to love and to cherish. But if people aren't converted, if people don't come to Jesus, if the world's not reformed, we look back on it and we go, are we a failure? For some of you, how long have you prayed for that person in your family to know Christ? How long? And they have not come. Is that your fault? Who saves? Who saves? God saves. Jesus is the only one who saves. No matter how much you plant or sow or water or fertilize or love or cultivate or pray, Jesus saves. You don't save, Jesus saves. And so your faith is not hanging in the balance based on whether somebody comes to salvation. Your faith is not hanging in the balance based on the response of someone else. Jesus saves. If you've ex accepted salvation from Christ, you need to allow the world to accept salvation from Christ. This is not something that sits on your shoulders. 
And that's this depression Elijah's in. He says, I am a failure because Israel is not saved, and that was my job. That's what he's saying here. You can care for and you can feed the sick, but you are not the great physician. You cannot heal. Only God can heal. I was having coffee with Dick Elkins this week, and I was chewing on this passage. Uh, I frequently bounce these things off him. And so I said on a whim to Dick, I said, Dick, during all your time in the mission field, did you ever come across a family or a missionary who had, had been in the mission field for a long time and had not experienced fruit, had not experienced great revival, had not seen people come to Jesus? And I was expecting him to kind of look off in the aimless distance and try to recall that name of that one person. Uh, that's not what happened. He goes, oh, yeah. And he begins to tell me story after story. There's this family that was in this place in the Philippines for 30 years. For 30 years, they slaved after the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know how many converts are to their name? One. And that person's testimony is so humble and full of fear that it would not sound like a Christian profession to you or me. One in 30 years. If you share the gospel... If you live out the Christian life based on, let me fix this here. If you're living out the Christian life based on people coming to Jesus, you are setting yourself up for depression. We don't preach Jesus so that people get saved. Because if that's why we're doing it, if you and I are preaching Jesus so that people get saved, what happens when a year goes by and nobody gets saved? What happens to your spirit? If you're preaching so that people come to Jesus, so that people come to know Christ, what happens when two years goes by, or three years goes by, or 20 or 30 years goes by, and nobody comes to Jesus? If that's why you're preaching, you're going to be in for disappointment. But if we preach the gospel because it's true and because God wants us to proclaim it, and if we proclaim Christ as an act of worship to him, then the response of this world is moot. The response of this world is immaterial to our call to proclaim the gospel. The response of this world, the results, the fruits that are harvested in front of us or not harvested in front of us are not material to whether you or I should preach or whether you or I are being faithful. We preach because it is good news. We preach because we are in light and they are in darkness. That's why we preach. Whether they respond or not is not us. Jesus saves. You don't save, Jesus saves. And what we have here is a man who expected that his job was to save Israel. Your job is to love and to pray, it's to show grace, celebrate mercy, it's to obey, it's to forgive. That's your job. Jesus saves. I find it interesting that the Lord's Prayer, this is what is asked of the Lord. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. The simplicity of the prayer just preaches volumes. We have these strategies to win souls. And the Lord's, Jesus says, pray like this. Lord, give me today that I might be righteous today. That I might do what you call me to do today. Because the Lord saves. And that's what brings Elijah 
into such depths of despair. If you'll read with me now, we'll pick up in verse 6 and we'll go through 13. So Elijah's low. He's called on the Lord to take him away. He lies down and he falls asleep. And it says here in the end of verse 5, All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back a second time and said to him, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and he drank. Strengthened by the food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, He pulled his cloak over his face and he went out and he stood at the mouth of the cave. Elijah swoons. He he, he says, Lord, I have expired. Take my life. An angel then comes. He feeds him. The angel says, get up and go for the journey is long. And as Elijah goes, notice how long he's in the wilderness. He's in, by the way, the same wilderness that the Hebrew people traveled in for 40 years. And he's there for 40 days and 40 nights. And the scripture there just wants you to know that during this time, God is working on Elijah. God's refining Elijah. Anytime the Lord takes someone away for 40 days, he's doing something there. And so he's carving out Elijah for himself. And he brings him to Mount Horeb, which is the mountain of God, which is where God revealed himself to Moses. The legend has it they were in the same cave. And then God does this thing. He says, come out and watch because I'm going to pass by. And this is one of those times in Scripture. Remember, I started this whole sermon series saying there are are moments in Scripture that are almost mystical or magical that I can't even begin to get my arms around. This is one of them. I, I don't even know how to fully preach this moment in Scripture. It is so big. It is so majestic that I don't think anybody could preach over it. But I think we can simply touch on it here. But but the Lord says, come, and I'm going to pass by. And then he passes by in a tempest, but the Lord is not there. And he passes by in an earthquake, and then the fire. And finally, in a gentle voice. Here's what I've come to understand. God certainly possesses the power to do mighty things. God can call fire from the sky. God can command the earth to quake. God can send the wind. God can send hail. God can send ten, ten plagues on a foreign kingdom full of gods who claim to have power. God 
displays full power over them. God has the power to take life and to give life. God has sent storms and floods. And all that, God has done these things. Why, I don't always know, but he's done these things. But is that God? Is that God? Is that display of power God? I don't think that's fully God. We know that those who refuse to follow after God, we know those who turn from the Lord and walk in their own way, decide to live their own life, refuse to obey and worship, we know that the God that they will meet is the God of the tempest. That is the God they will meet. But do we presume that they know God? That's the God they will meet. But I would, I would say they are the ones who don't know God. The God that they see is not the God that we know. They're like on the outside of God looking in. But the God of the tempest is not the God who is the tempest. And for those people who listen, for those people who strive after the Lord in turn, they find that God is not in the judgment of the fire or the tempest or the wind or the earthquake. God is in his voice. He speaks. To you who listen, God speaks. To you this morning, some of you, God may be saying, why are you here? When Adam and Eve fell, after eating the fruit, did God strike them with a lightning bolt? No. In the cool of the day, he walks in and says, Adam, where are you? When Cain refused to give a worthy sacrifice, did God rent him and put him in the grave? No. He says, Cain. The way of God is righteous. You can do this. It is not too far from you. That's what he says to Cain. Don't don't brood in your anger, Cain. That's what God says. When God calls Abraham, does he do it with some kind of lightning from east to west? No. He calls him gently and he promises him. When God calls Moses, is there an earthquake? No. It's a gentle voice that says, remove your sandals. Because you're on holy ground, I have heard the cry of my people. When God sent Jesus, did Jesus rent this world to pieces? Did he destroy it? Jesus himself says, I could usher down an army of angels that would ravage the land if I so choose. With a word, Jesus could have done that. But is that what Jesus did? No. The words of Jesus are gentle words. Blessed are the meek, is what Jesus says. To those who hear, the kingdom is available. Jesus, who has all the power of the tempest, says, blessed are those who yearn for righteousness. Jesus, who has the power to divine good from evil, who will one day separate the sheep from the goats, says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. God has the tempest, but he is not known as the tempest. God's word has been given to us. Not just this book, but his spirit. Not just his spirit, but the testimony of you to one another. The gospel you share with others may be the only word that they ever receive. I pray that you might speak it so that they might be saved from the tempest.